BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us. Ambassador William J. Vandenhoevel, Hope and History is his new book, A Memoir of Tumultuous Times. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom, very much. Glad to be here. You have led an extraordinary life from your birth in 1930 up to today. Your first chapter is titled Growing Up in the Age of Roosevelt, and you have some just extraordinary stories there. But in your seventh chapter, you talk also about running for Congress in 1960 and Eleanor Roosevelt endorsing you. You worked with Bobby Kennedy. I mean, you have seen the arc of history in this country in a way that most of us have not. And I'm wondering what lessons you learned from the Great Depression, from Franklin Roosevelt's work, and all the stuff that has intervened to this day about today's politics, looking back. I grew up in Rochester, New York, an immigrant family. My mother and father had both emigrated to the United States, and we barely spoke English at home. It was a time, although the Depression was well underway, the arrival of President Roosevelt in the White House made the difference. They'd have a president who spoke to the concerns of the people directly, who was not afraid. I mean, the phrase that we often cite with Roosevelt, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, really had meaning to people who were fearful for their jobs, fearful for their homes. Almost everything was challenged because the Depression was so severe. But it was the Democratic Revolution that Roosevelt led that made the difference in America. And when we talk about the greatness of America, we should measure it really in the last 75 years when the liberal government that he established addressed itself to the needs of the people for the first time, really, in a very direct way. And so in our home, as in all the homes in Rochester, working-class families, Franklin Mellon and Roosevelt were true heroes. Yeah. And Roosevelt established a new direction for the Democratic Party in 1933, although Democrats had been at least opposed to Harding and Coolidge and whatnot through that era, and Hoover, ultimately. But it seems that the Democratic Party has disengaged in many regards from Roosevelt's visions. I mean, his suggestion for a second Bill of Rights that would guarantee as a right health care, for example, and a job and education. Lyndon Johnson kind of brought some of that stuff to the fore with the Great Society. Do you... Lyndon, go ahead. Lyndon Johnson did a great job in continuing the New Deal. But the president, President Roosevelt, in 1944, in his last State of the Union address, outlined the second Bill of Rights that included health care, that included a decent home, included a decent job. Now, you don't get these things by just pushing a button. You get these things by making it the focus of your party and of your own individual leadership. And this was the world that Roosevelt said we had to create to justify the terrible cruelty and losses of the Second World War. And that's when he enunciated the Four Freedoms as well, in January of 1941, before the United States was in the war. Roosevelt went to the nation and said, these are times that probably involve us in this terrible war. But the only thing that can justify our losses of our children and losses of the treasure of our nations is that we're going to create a different world. Yeah. The world he set out to create was a world based on the Four Freedoms, a world that was based on cooperation, working together with nations, and offering freedom and justice to everyone. 
Your daughter, Katrina Van Inhoevel, published The Nation magazine and has been a real champion for progressive causes all these years. And it seems that, you know, Jimmy Carter was, you know, the first Democratic president after the Great Society and was trying to reprise parts of it. But ever since then, it seems like much of the Democratic Party has kind of lost its way. And we've seen this bifurcation that was, you know, super on display in the 2016 election and the Hillary versus Bernie stuff. Where do you see the Democratic Party going? I mean, you've known so many from Eleanor Roosevelt through Bobby Kennedy you worked with. You've known you have been so inside and so known these people. Where do we go with this? I think you have to have a president or a presidential candidate before you can truly focus where the party is and what it's saying. Mm. It makes all the difference in the world. And if you if you have a conservative Democrat, then you have that going in that direction. Roosevelt was a great, sincere, progressive, liberal president. And Mrs. Roosevelt herself was a nation's leader. But I think that today you're going to find a definition of who we are by who emerges as our leaders in the primary elections that are to come. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is certainly a liberal leader. Yes. And I, I think of the judge for the many, she's an extraordinarily effective leader in the House of Representatives. But we're going to have to live through the next year to see the 23 candidates in action. And a lot's going to happen that we can predict. But good and bad things are going to happen. So that by the time we get to the fight where we have a candidate against Trump, we're going to have learned a lot. We're talking to Ambassador William J. Vandenhoevel, his new book, Hope in History, a memoir of tumultuous times, which is just an extraordinary look into this arc of history of the United States. You made reference, John, to Carter's presidency. Yes. And then the decline of progressive government. That one of the problems was that Lyndon Johnson left us not only with a extraordinary accomplishments in the fields of so many human needs, but he left us with Vietnam. Yes. And Vietnam, I think, took a great deal of the energy and direction out of the Democratic Party. To what extent do you think that the assassination of Bobby Kennedy did the same thing? Oh, terrible. What America went through in those five years in the 60s, first starting with the assassination of President Kennedy, itself one of the most profound traumatic shocks that America had ever experienced. And then the murder of Martin Luther King, and then the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And so you wiped out the leadership, the generation of leadership. Robert Kennedy would have made a great president. He was tough. He was smart. He was resilient. He was compassionate. He had a sense of the needs of our people's nation. He had a sense of the terrible aspect of racial dimensions in American life. And I think he would have done so much in many ways, to bring the country together, to unite it, and to give it purpose. What is the main message that you would like to convey to people with your new book, Hope and History? I think we have to understand we live in a totally different age, and one of the great enemies of democracy is war. We have to stop endless wars in this world where we're involved, and whether we're involved or not. And then we have to confront our racial dilemma that's been part of the 300 years of American history on this continent and understand that what we have to do to try to bring true opportunity and decency to the lives of all Americans. And I think perhaps more than anything, we need to put in the White House a president who speaks the truth. The great enemy of democracy is falsehood. And unless the president himself is committed to truth, then I think the nation's democratic values are in jeopardy. What an extraordinary summary I completely agree on every point and so very well said. The book is Hope and History, a memoir of tumultuous times by former Ambassador William J. Vandenhoevel, the foreword by Douglas Brinkley. Sir, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for writing this brilliant memoir. I highly recommend it. Tom Hartman here with you. And Egberto Willies is asking a really important question over at Daily Kos. Uh, he says, how do we avert the inevitable plutocrat-driven civil war? Now, I'm not envisioning a shooting kind of civil war. And maybe we need to come up with another word for it that doesn't imply people going out with guns. But 
there is a walling off of different parts of America based largely on race, on a lifestyle. And by lifestyle, I'm not talking about gender identity or anything like that. I'm talking about living rural versus living urban, you know, working in tech versus, you know, being a farmer, those kinds of things. So you got race, you've got lifestyle slash geography and what's called politics. And I think that this was really highlighted by the fact that, you know, Donald Trump, when he gets to the UK, freaks out, comes into London and immediately tweets out about how upset he is that he can't watch Fox. Fox hasn't broadcast in the United Kingdom for a couple of years because nobody was watching. So why have the expense? I mean, you know, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd pointed out in a recent newspaper piece that Rupert Murdoch took over so much of the media in Australia that he basically destroyed the politics of that country. Then he moved to the UK and he bought, you know, the Times of London and a whole bunch of tabloids. And and he did the same thing to the UK, you know, helping get right-wing prime ministers elected forever. And then he came to the United States and he did it to us through Fox, the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, Fox really stands alone against every other news service in denying climate change, in supporting tax policies that support the billionaires to the exclusion of average people, in supporting deregulation of the poisons that are poured into our air and the poisons that are poured into our water. Fox News supports all these things. And no other media does, because no other media is billionaire-owned, billionaire-controlled, and programmed specifically in ways that only help very, very wealthy right-wing billionaires and their companies and the companies that made them rich. And I think that his unwillingness to even watch CNN should tell us everything we need to know about the tragedy of democracy that's being caused by having a 24-7 propaganda channel. So how do we prevent this from tearing our country apart? I mean, it's already happening. You've got a gaslighter, a gaslighting billionaire in the White House, as Egberto Willis points out over Daily Kos. A guy who just delights in lying through his teeth to the American people. Over 10,000 lies since he became president. And, you know, and thousands of lies, obviously, before that, thousands of lies going back to his claiming that Barack Obama, you know, our nation's first black president, couldn't be a legitimate American citizen. His calling in the 90s for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, who had nothing to do with the violent attack on that young woman in the park. It turns out it was, you know, a serial rapist slash killer who, as I recall, was even a white guy. But Donald Trump, you know, bought this ad in the New York Times saying, put him to death, right? And he hasn't retracted it. And so my question for you, do you think that we are heading towards something that resembles a civil war, a tearing apart of families, a tearing apart of the fabric of our country? with or without guns, I think you might be able to argue that actually there's even a gun piece to this that's kind of scary. For the better part of two decades, this is uh, David Neward over at Daily Kos. For the better part of two decades, Americans have generally ignored their quietly mounting problem of homegrown domestic terrorism committed by far-right white extremists. And he points out that both the numbers and the history demonstrate that officially and in the media, we have underinvested in monitoring and confronting this kind of terrorism. These are the so-called red pill young men. For example, uh, out of Monroe, Washington and the Snohomish County court system, 20-year-old Dakota Reed, he's a, a young man, was posting under the nom de plume Rudolf Haas. He was the commandant of Auschwitz. And he says, he posts on Facebook, I'm shooting for 30 Jews. No pun needed, not long ways away anyways. See you goys. So they arrested him, freed him on $50,000 bond, and he goes back out and, and he says, y'all mind if I go into a random courthouse in the movie Narnia and take my M32 grenade launcher? Coming for my guns, the police is. Booby trapped with explosives. My front door has been, trying to talk like Yoda, This time, the judge sent bail of a half million dollars. In Utah, 27-year-old Christopher Cleary says, you know, basically, I'm still a virgin, and therefore, I'm going to, quote, kill as many girls as I see. He worked out a plea bargain. He said he was, quote, involuntarily celibate. In other words, no woman would have sex with him. And so he's going to go out and kill them. 
and it's growing and it's growing on social media. Heidi Beinrich is the director of the Intelligence Project over at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And she says, quote, there's no way that if someone was connected to Islamic extremism, they would be handled this way. We have two totally separate legal ways to deal with terrorism in the United States. If they are Muslim terrorists, all American, or if they're foreign terrorists, then we have really strong laws. And I would add to that, if they are black guys that have been labeled terrorists by our government, I mean, going all the way back to, I think it was in Philadelphia where they firebombed that house. Uh, Project Move, what was the name of that? In any case, this is nuts. And so we've got a way for dealing with white supremacist terrorists, which is very different from the way that we deal with Muslim supremacist terrorists. And, you know, as Heidi Beirich of uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center points out, the latter is much more punishing, that is, the, you know, the anti-Muslim terrorists, filled with legal tools that don't exist for domestic terrorism. And she says some of the sentences for domestic terrorists are ridiculously light in comparison to the others. So that's another piece of this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So I'm on book tour this week and bouncing around the country and out of my time zone and hard sleeping and weird schedules and lots of airplane rides. And uh, bottom line, I could use some CBD oil. And the CBD oil that I travel with, that I use, is New Leaf Naturals. It's from NULeafNaturals.com. It is 100% organic. It is highly concentrated. It contains no additional additives. It's grown right here in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp. It's legal, it's safe, and it's pure and in its most simple form. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. So you get the health benefits of the cannabinoids without, without getting high, without the mind-altering effects. So check this out. This is amazing. A 30% discount if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, over at newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com. 30% off, free ship, plus free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, and that's newleafnaturals.com. And use the code TOM to get your 30% discount and free shipping. NewLeafNaturals.com. Code Tom. Meanwhile, this is the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, in The Guardian. Bases praising the very fine people on both sides when torch-wielding white supremacists and anti-Semites marched through the streets clashing with anti-racist campaigners threatening to veto a ban on the use of rape as a weapon of war, setting an immigration policy that forcefully separates young children from their parents at the border, the deliberate use of xenophobia, racism, and otherness as an electoral tactic, introducing a travel ban to a number of predominantly Muslim countries, lying deliberately and repeatedly to the public. No, writes the mayor of London. These are not the actions of European dictators in the 30s, nor military juntas of the 70s. I'm not talking about Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un. These are the actions of the leader of our closest ally, the president of the United States. This is a man who tried to exploit Londoners' fears following a horrific terrorist attack on our city, amplified the tweets of a British far-right racist group, denounced as fake news robust science evidence warning of the dangers of climate change, and is now trying to interfere shamelessly in the Conservative Party leadership race by backing Boris Johnson because he believes it would enable him to gain an ally on number 10 for his divisive agenda. And then he points out, by the way, this is not just something happening in the United States. He says Donald Trump is just one of the most egregious examples of a growing global threat. The far right. It's on the rise around the world, threatening our hard-won rights and freedoms and the values that have defined our liberal democratic societies for more than 70 years. He points out Orban in Hungary, Salvini in Italy, Le Pen in France, Farage in the UK. These are basically fascist movements. So to Egberto Willie's question, how do we avert the inevitable plutocrat-driven civil war? And how do we more effectively call out Fox News and the other organizations, the other so-called news organizations and whatnot, who are basically promoting civil war in the United States? How can we reach out to these 
involuntarily celibate young men. How can we create a country where people don't feel like this shooter in Virginia Beach that, you know, work is hell and I've got to go in and shoot the place up? How do we fix this stuff? So, Rick, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind? Yes, I'm responding to your comment about what we're turning into. And I've been telling all my friends, you know what, we are turning into a third world country. The proof of it is, I know a lot of people, they can't get the help. There's an article in my local paper about a mushroom farmer gets over 100 people. He can't even get 10 because they're all afraid they're going to be deported. My doctor feels we are already the, the crevices of a third world country because people can't pay her bill. And what about these kids that, that have no love, no parents? If you don't think they're going to take you know, violent action against us, I think you're living in la-la land. We could end up be having shootings in the street. I hope I'm wrong, but that's the way it looks like to me. Yeah. Yeah, it is a real problem, Rick. And the question, I guess, is when did America become a third world country? When Reagan was sworn into office in 1981, in January of 1981, the United States was the largest importer of raw materials. In other words, we bought iron ore from other countries, right? We imported raw materials. We were the largest raw material importer in the world. And what we did, and Rick, thank you for the call. I'm just going to go off on this now because you gave me a great topic here. And then we manufactured those raw materials into finished goods. We took that iron ore, we turned it into iron, we then turned the iron into steel, we then turned the steel into washing machines and dryers and cars and appliances and ships and cars and train cars and all the, you know, I mean, we made stuff. And then we exported a lot of that stuff that we made. We were the largest importer of raw materials, the largest exporter of finished goods. And similarly, We were the largest creditor in the world. More countries owed the United States money than any other country in the history of the world and that any other other time in history. That was when Reagan was sworn into office. He became president of a fully developed first world country. By the time his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, left office, 12 years of Reaganism policies, of neoliberal policies, which are continuing to this day, 12 years of this stuff, The United States went from being the largest importer of raw materials to being the largest exporter of raw materials. We now ship to China iron ore and trees, which they turn into products that they ship back to us. We have become, we've moved from being the largest exporter of finished goods to the largest importer of finished goods. Everything you buy in America is made in China. And we became the largest debtor in the world. That is a third world nation. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And it's why we need a national industrial policy, and frankly, a national industrial policy and a national trade policy, I think, would help with the coming civil war, as it were. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Inherent contempt. Okay, go for it. Uh, uh, Professor need y'all got to give me some meat here. When Steve Mnuchin defied uh, subpoena, from the U.S. Congress, and Ms. Pelosi did not send a sergeant of arms to pick his ass up, it reminds me of something that Jimmy Dore once said, that the Democratic Party is paid to lose. Now, talk to me about that. Is he crazy? Are the Democrats paid to lose? Why hasn't Nancy Pelosi went and picked his ass up, and he's defying a subpoena from the Congress, the House Ways and Means Committee? That's something everybody can respect. It's not Democrat. It's not Republican. It's not Libertarian. Everybody can respect that. And when we blatantly see the Democratic Party ignore nor following protocol and arresting a guy that's ignoring protocol, normal procedure. Something wrong with us. And Jimmy Dore looking like he's correct. Is he tripping or what's up? You talk to Well, me. I can't speak to him, but what I can tell you, Morris, is that if somebody comes to your house to arrest you, they, in all probability, have a warrant. The only exception to warrants is if a police officer sees a crime in progress, and then, you know, because of what they saw, they can arrest somebody, or the testimony of multiple witnesses. But generally speaking, if you want to arrest somebody, you have to go to a court and get a warrant for their arrest, whether it's the guy living next door to you who's throwing firecrackers in your yard or shooting at you, or whether it's Bill Barr or whether it was Mnuchin. 
And so what Pelosi is doing right now and what Congress is doing right now is they're starting that process. The committees have voted for contempt. It now goes to the full House. Pelosi has to hold a full House vote for contempt. And then that goes to a court. They will then ask for the arrest of these guys. And of course, the guys will say, no, no way. You you don't have the right to arrest us. So it goes to a court and a court will either say, yes, you can arrest them or no, you can't. But Nancy Pelosi is not King Tut. Uh, She's not Napoleon. You know, she can't just jump on a horse and say, off, we're going to go off to battle. We're going to go arrest these guys. She doesn't have that power. It has to be ordered by a court. And I can tell you, Morris, the steps that are being taken right now in Congress, in my opinion, are the steps necessary to get to that. So I'm saying take a deep breath and let's give this a few weeks. There's a fair amount of time here. And in fact, there are people who are making the argument, and I don't believe that this is Pelosi's thinking, but who are making the argument that having impeachment hearings, even if they don't lead to an impeachment vote, And these other hearings, like, for example, you know, asking Mnuchin to come in or asking Barr to come in, that having these kind of hearings that show the arrogance, the recklessness, the defiance of law, the the obstruction of justice of the Trump administration for the entire country to see will actually have more impact if they happen next year than if they happen this year, because they will impact the election and they will hurt Republicans running for office. And I think that that's the case, too. So, Morris, that's my response. And thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Good talking with you. Larry in Lewin, Mississippi. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind? Oh, yes, sir. Well, my question is, why is the Democratic Party not trying to support the momentum that's going forward uh, from the Progressive Party, and they're going against it with the centrist Democratic Party? So how, for us, will we be able to maintain our momentum if we don't get the support of the party in which we are amongst right. or use it to prepare our message forward? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've seen this with the Republican Party already. The Republican Party started out, you know, in the 1950s, arguably, as kind of the party of big business. And then they became, in with the Reagan administration, the party of the billionaires. The Democratic Party used to be the party of the progressives. They became the party of kind of white-collar business. And now they're going back to being the party of progressives. So it's really, Larry, it's up to you. And as many friends as you can get. If you can take over your local Democratic Party, you can turn it progressive. That's how we have to do it. Larry, thanks for the call. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home's collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. My new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, is shipping. I have an article over at Alternet and also at Common Dreams titled uh, How Guns Literally Go to Men's Heads that I think you might find fascinating. We talked about it a few days ago. And on the line with us right now is Julio Rivera, editorial director at Reactionary Times, columnist at Newsmax, American Thinker and Townhall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com. The website is Twitter handle is Oh Yeah, It's Julio. And Julio, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, as always. It is great talking with you. Our uh, video director, Nate, was just making the comment before we came on the air. Uh, of course, you're, you're coming in by video for the people watching us that you're the most, what was the word you used? Stylish? Yeah, the most stylish conservative that we've ever had. It's like, Thank you. So. Well, you know, I, I try not to dress like a conservative. Yeah, it was a, it was a compliment. So uh, guns and health care, rights and privileges. You know, a right is something that we all agree is something that the government should protect. The government may not infringe on a right. You know, I have a right to speak in the public square, essentially. Or I have a right to free speech, and that can't be infringed upon unless there's a really good reason, like yelling fire in a crowded theater. But I don't have a right to own a car. I have a right, arguably, to drive one with a license, but I don't have the right. So that's a privilege. So health care and guns, which of these is a right and which is a privilege in your world? 
Well, you know, that's changed a lot. I mean, and I just want to clarify a couple things. Yes, rights are, you know, we're born with rights, supposedly. They're, they're natural, you know, constitutionally, you know, there's a certain set of rights that we have. Privileges are conditional after birth. That's more or less the way I define it. But the way that if you look at in practical application, the way that things are now, guns are supposedly a right, but it's very difficult in many locations to even get your hands on a gun, not to mention the cost involved, you know, as far as what a gun costs, what it, you know, register, licensure. Oh, yeah, a new gun can cost more than a used car. <laughs> These are, it's amazing. Exactly, yeah, and then, but then... These companies are making a lot of money, Julio, which, yeah. which, of course, they're cycling through the NRA and a whole bunch of Republican politicians, but anyhow, as you were saying. Okay, as I was saying, as far as health care now, health care is actually kind of turned more into a right when you consider the subsidies that are given out for people who can't afford health care. There's a lot of people who more easily... Except in Republican states. Huh? Except in Republican states. In Republican states, they've pulled the plug on that. You can still get a subsidy under Obamacare, but if you're poor, if you make less than, it depends on the state, but typically less than around ten or $12,000 a year, and you're working, and you're making more than the $2,000 or $3,000 a year that qualifies you for the absolute poverty level stuff. But if you're the working poor, you don't get Medicaid. You don't get that in, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida. I mean, pick your state, right? Yeah, that is true. But I mean, I don't know. At this point, I mean, rights don't mean what they used to mean. I mean, I think the government's gotten too powerful. And as far as like the Second Amendment issue, like in New Jersey, it's very difficult. You have to go through a lot of a lot of steps to get a gun in New Jersey. There's other states, however, where you could just, you know, walk into Walmart and walk out with, you know, pretty much arm a militia. So, I mean, it does vary from state to state, so I don't think across the board it's the same. But, I mean, in terms of health care, though, there's a, a one issue that I wanted to, or the one a point I want to make kind of with you. We have a services-based economy now. This is a service that is a very valuable service that it, it takes highly skilled personnel to be able to provide, you know, health care to people, you know, doctors. They go through a lot. So there's a cost to that, you know, because their education and their level of training and expertise is so high, it becomes difficult to sit there and say, well, as a government, we can guarantee health care as a right for people. I mean, we know that doctors in our country weren't exactly ecstatic about Obamacare, and there were a lot of you know, doctors that resigned. You know, they refused to work under that system once that was announced. Really? You name know, one. Well, oh, I know several in New Jersey, but what I'm saying is we were already working with a doctor shortage. If you're talking about providing health care like socialized medicine which you know you like to talk about your buddy bernie sanders likes to talk about you know it's next to impossible we just don't have the workforce to provide reasonable health care in that manner okay so we can't have health care as a right in the united states a because we're not smart enough we can't figure out how to do it this was trump's argument you know america's unique every other every other developed country in the world has health care universal health care as a right and a hundred percent of the citizens we're literally out of the 34 oecd countries there's only one where you can go broke if you get sick, and that's the United States. So, A, we're not smart enough, and B, it's too complicated. Is that your argument? Well, the other thing is, too, sorry, let's say, let's say we tried to execute that. Let's say that we created government-run medical schools, and we started training these people, like, as GSs, you know, and just made them government employees, you know, more, more or less an expansion of kind of what's going on with the VA, right? The type of candidates that we would field would probably be significantly did, did we just change the discussion from how should we have health care to how should we educate doctors? I don't think the education of doctors. I mean, I'm with you that there's a shortage of doctors and that the AMA has created this shortage. They're, they're a very, very powerful organization. And over the years, since the, since the 40s, I believe, maybe before that even, the AMA, you know, they're a certifying agency for medical schools. You have to have AMA certification and they will only grant it to a certain number of schools and based on a certain number of students because they're trying to keep the supply of doctors low so that the pay for doctors is high. In most other countries, doctors, you know, I lived in Germany for a year and I where I lived there was a health clinic that was part of this nonprofit organization that, that I was working with and the doctor there Dr. Geert he and I became very very good friends 
And, you know, he made about, I think he made $106,000 a year. That number sticks in my head. But it was in the neighborhood of hundred grand a year. That's also the neighborhood of what cops in Stadtsteinach or in Kulmbach, the next big town over, were making. I mean, cops and doctors are paid about the same in most of Europe. They have very, very high standards for cops. It takes several years of college. And they have high standards for doctors, too. That seems like a reasonable thing to me, Julio. You realize if you have more doctors, you're going to have lower doctor pay. What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, you have to find the individuals that are willing to go through the years and years of training. And oh, I absolutely agree. Better. But here's a question for you. If you were going to have surgery tomorrow and you had a choice between two doctors, one who went into medicine because she absolutely loved the idea of saving people's lives and loved medicine and knew that she could make a good, healthy living at it, you know, over a hundred grand a year, but really loved medicine or a doctor who went into medicine because he was convinced that if he got a medical degree, he could become a millionaire. Which one of those two doctors would you want doing surgery on you or on your family? The, the one that wants to be a millionaire, because you only become a millionaire if you're the best of the best. So I want, only want the best of the best touching my organs. So the profit motive will cause people to behave with great competence rather than cover up their mistakes? No, I think that it will have them, like you just said, behave the latter. They'll behave with great competence. You, you don't think that people, if, if people think that there's big, big bucks at stake, that they're going to lie to people, that they're going to cheat, that they're going to they're they're cut wait, corners? You're making an assumption that they're lying. That, that well, that's what I see in everywhere, every place where you've replaced them. That you have to lie. Well, every place you replace the public good with the profit motive, that's what happens. Look at charter schools. You got charter schools running all kinds of scams. Donald Trump, his school got shut down as, as a fraud. Why? Because there was profit to be made. On the other hand, in public schools where you've got teachers who are, you know, you can get a, make a decent living, but you're going to you go into it because you love teaching. It's a whole different thing. You don't see these scams. Well, listen, I've always thought that the teachers in the unions were too strong in guaranteeing their pay structure. I've always felt that the only way that you should get, you know, $100,000 to, you know, work six hours a day and, and have your summers off here in this country, basically at taxpayer expense, is only if you're truly the best of the best. I don't so know I if any to... teachers making 100 grand in a public school or any, even in a yeah, charter school. I know, I know plenty. I I mean, you know, maybe, plenty in, maybe in some big cities, but... but the, are, are you still stuck in the 70s where, where you live in Oregon? No, what I know is that the median income for somebody with a master's degree, which is what's required in many states to teach now, the median income for somebody with a master's degree is $20,000 higher than the median income for a teacher with a master's degree. I know that. And, you know, teachers are underpaid. But, but we've wandered far afield here. Back to the original question. Is owning a gun a right or a privilege or should be? Let's say they should. Should in the United States owning a gun be a right or a privilege? And should access to health care at no cost in the United States be a right or a privilege? Real okay. simple question. Okay. In this country currently, uh, we're living under the guise that we have a right to guns. I, I really don't believe that's what it is anymore, and I, I think it should No, I be. get all your qualifications and things, but it sounds to me like the main difference between you and me, what makes you a conservative and what makes me a liberal on these issues, is that I think that health care should be a right and, and owning a gun should be a privilege, and you think that owning a gun should be a right and health care should be a privilege. Do I have that right? If doctors, if doctors with 10 years of education grew on trees and they were all competent at that level... Like they do in Canada. I mean, the fact of the matter is the logistics of what it takes to create a doctor and everything that goes into like in Canada, like in the UK, like in Germany, you know. So again, you want I mean, listen, these, these healthcare systems that you're referencing are not perfect. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that have a problem with socialized medicine and the way that it's administrated. Uh, and and a lot tell that to somebody from the UK. I mean, they're they are hysterical right now that Donald Trump wants to do a trade agreement that's going to privatize the National Health Service. Listen, I'm going to be on. I'm going to be on European. You know what? Ask me this in a year, Tom, because I'm I'm actually relocating to Europe, and I'm going to be on European socialized healthcare. So yeah. let's see how it works for me. Well, it'll it'll be it should be fascinating. I, you know, like as I said, I did that in Germany I for a year. I come back and I'm as happy with it as you are. Yeah, no, I've, you've always been straight with me, uh, Julio, and I appreciate it. Julio Rivera, editorial director of Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, American Thinker, and Townhall.com, uh, the website reactionarytimes.com, and his web and his uh, Twitter handle is oh yeah o h y e a h. It's Julio J u l i o. Julio, thanks so much for dropping by. No problem. Thank you, too. Uh, Steve in Lexington Park, Maryland. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? I've been a teacher since 1976. 
31 years on the elementary school level and now 23 years as an adjunct professor on the university level. And I got a master's degree and a doctorate degree. And I can tell Julio and anybody else with that same mindset, I have never made over $100,000 a year. In fact, my late wife, we tried, when we had our first child, we tried to live just on my salary alone. And we found out we could not. So my late wife started up a business, and then she went into politics and so forth. So I just want to let everybody know, teachers, at least my, through my experience, we don't make over $100,000. And he also said we got off during the summertime. Yes, teachers are off during the summer, but most of us, we would then go to school and um, continue with our education or some of us, like I did in my first year of teaching, I got a part-time job during the summer. So right. it's not all high pay and luxury. Yeah, I absolutely get it. And you know, it's a really important point to be made. Yeah, and you made it very well. And uh, thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for the call. Boy, what a day. Our, our conversation with Julio was fascinating. Which is, which is a right and which is a privilege, guns or health care? He's a conservative. He says guns are a right, health care is a privilege. I'm a liberal. I say guns are a privilege. Healthcare is a right. Now, the UK had this discussion a whole long time ago. I believe it was right after World War II. It might have been after World War I, but it was, you know, back in the day. And what they decided was that guns are a privilege and healthcare is a right. And so they created the National Health Service, this literally national health service. They built their own hospitals. They built doctor's offices. They called them surgeries, local doctor's offices. They put young people through medical school and got enough doctors and nurses to staff the whole thing. You know, every developed country has health care as a universal right and everybody is covered. Nobody goes broke from being sick. Only in the United States can you end up in bankruptcy because somebody in your family or you got sick. And that happens to about 600,000 American families a year. In the United Kingdom, the number of families who go bankrupt because they got sick is zero. Zero. And the same with Germany and France and, I mean, you pick your European country, your developed country, zero. So they've already litigated this stuff. And the National Health Service is like, people in the UK love the National Health Service. I mean, this is, this is where you go to get care, to get help. And I would say largely as a result of the United States Supreme Court in 1976 at the urging of Lewis Powell, author of the Powell Memo, the 1971 Powell Memo. Nixon put him on the Supreme Court right after he wrote the Powell Memo in 72, put him on the Supreme Court. In 76, the Supreme Court ruled in a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo that money is speech. Well, they'd already said corporations are people, that basically money is speech. That if somebody with a lot of money wants to buy a politician or wants to buy public opinion by dumping that money into the public airwaves to argue for or against a particular piece of legislation or a ballot initiative or a candidate for office, they may do that because that is speech. And you have this right to free speech articulated in the First Amendment. Now, never before in the history of the United States prior to 1976 had we ever had this weird notion that corporations have a right of free speech and that the way that they exercise that, that right, because they don't have mouths, You know, they're just corporations or billionaires, for that matter, who do have mouths. But their speech is beyond just their what they say with their mouth. It's also how many dollars they have. That's how much free speech they have. U.S. Supreme Court decided this. And as a result, we've seen this steady ever since 76. It went on steroids in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. We have seen this steady encroachment of corporate power and billionaire power taking over our largely our entire political dialogue. Certainly the entire political dialogue on the Republican side and about half of the political dialogue on the Democratic side. And the result of that is that we have maintained, we have continued to maintain ever since that time, a healthcare system that is great for making big profits for billionaires. Stephen J. Hemsley, the last CEO of United Healthcare, made over a billion dollars. The guy that he replaced, they called him Dollar Bill McGuire took $1.6 billion. And then he was caught in a multi-million dollar fraud. He had to give back a couple hundred million dollars of it. But no, he didn't go to jail for that. I mean, it was just a couple hundred million dollars, right? So we have a healthcare system, a for-profit healthcare system, where 600,000 Americans a year have to declare bankruptcy because somebody in their family got sick. But the CEOs of the hospitals and the health insurance companies, 
And some doctors are getting very, very wealthy. Not so much doctors. It's mostly the businessmen and women. So that's the situation. So now Donald Trump goes over to the UK and in a press conference with Theresa May, the prime minister, who is in this very difficult situation, if they have a hard Brexit, if they leave the European Union without any kind of trade agreement with any of the EU countries or without the European Union itself, and Theresa May negotiated one, but three different times she took it to Parliament and three different times Parliament said, no, we won't pass this. So if they don't have some sort of a middle ground agreement where there's some trade benefits to them, there's going to be chaos over the short term. I mean, it'll sort itself out within a year or two or three, but there's going to be short term chaos in the UK. And so one of the things that they're trying to do is line up trade partners. And the United States and the United Kingdom have, you know, trade that is huge. It's, we're one of the largest traders with the United Kingdom, you know, country by country, probably number one, if not uh, number two behind China. And they're a major trader with us. And, you know, there are a lot of British-owned companies in the United States as well. And so Theresa May and the Brits very much want to have a trade agreement with the United States. You know, I mean, good trade enhances prosperity. Bad trade diminishes prosperity. It's that simple. And they're trying to work out good trade. And Trump says, you want to do that? privatize your National Health Service. Sell off those doctor's offices to the doctors. Sell off the hospitals to the business people. So just take your entire infrastructure and put it on the auction block. And this is bizarre. We're meddling in another country's internal politics, first off. And secondly, it's a mindset that is, in my opinion, destructive to democracy itself. You know, when people are freaked out, when they can't get health care, they're less likely to trust their government. They're less likely to care about their government. They're less likely to vote and participate. I mean, just look at the Republican-controlled states where they didn't expand Medicaid. You've got people dying there who don't need to die. You've got the highest, if you look at, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, you've got the highest maternal death rates and the highest child death rates in the developed world because there was no expansion of Medicaid with Obamacare. So this is an issue that we need to be paying serious attention to. And we need to also, in our own country, now it's also an issue, by the way, that the Tories, the British version of Republicans, they're gung-ho for privatization. Yes, privatize the NHS. It worked so well with the railroads after all. Gag. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call one own gold That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. We've been talking about the impact in terms of health care and other things that money and politics has had. Let's go to the national expert on this. Caitlin Saposi-Belknap is the national director of Move to Amend. MoveToAmend.org is the website. The Twitter handle is also at Move to Amend. Caitlin, welcome back. Hi, Tom. Great to hear your voice again. Back at you. So uh, what's up? What are you guys doing now? <laughs> Where, where's Move to Amend at? How are the various states moving forward? How goes the battle? Yeah, well, I hope everyone will go to movetoamend.org and sign our petition to join the campaign to amend the Constitution to make clear that only human beings have constitutional rights, not corporations, and also that money is not speech. We've been working on this since Citizens United ruling, so almost 10 years ago, and... I and you have been working on this issue since before that, but as Move to Amend, 
And our amendment has been introduced in Congress three times. So it was reintroduced in the new Congress in February. I'm really excited that we have a new lead because Rick Nolan, who had been our original lead, retired last year. And so Pramila Jayapal, star that she is, is our new lead in the House. Wow, that's great. And she's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Her and Mark Mm -hmm. Bokian run that thing. Yes, we're super excited to be working with Representative Jayapal. She's great. And she came on in part because we passed a ballot initiative in her state of Washington. And she was inspired by that and volunteered to pick up the reins when Nolan retired. So that's very exciting. She was a bit busy working on Medicare for All at the beginning of this year. And so we're really kind of just getting two things in D.C. We have a conference coming up in a couple weeks. We call it our National Leadership Summit. You joined us there last year. Mm-hmm. And it was great to have you. So we'll be doing it again. And there's still registration. is still open. There's still some spots left. If folks Where is it going to be? It's in D.C. at the same place it was last year, so that's Trinity College, just, you know, right off the hill. Yeah, that was um, great. It's a full weekend conference of, you know, training and organizing and building analysis and strategy around this movement. And then we do a lobby day on that Monday, which always is a big hit. Um, we have a lot of people who have never, ever lobbied before who go and hit both their Senate offices and their House offices. And it's always very exciting. And then I'm going to be in D.C. actually for the first time more than a week. I'm going to be there for most of the summer to really keep on working on this. And we have 48 co-sponsors right now. So it's House Joint Resolution 48, and we just hit 48. We brought in a couple new co-sponsors because we had some actions last week. We're really trying to, you know, gear up for 2020. Every single member of the House will be up for election. And then obviously, you know, we know that it's a big federal election all around. And so far, you know, the presidential candidates mostly just talk about money and politics, and they really aren't even talking about that as much as they should. But as you know, Tom, and your listeners know, you know, the issue goes much deeper. The problem didn't begin with Citizens United. If we only overturn Citizens United and regrant Congress the authority to regulate campaign spending, that isn't going to solve our problem of corporate power and corporations overturning local laws and right. state laws. And Have you Citizens thought, United- Grover Norquist, you know, really took this thing national by, you know, his anti-tax pledge by essentially asking Republican candidates for office to sign his pledge, his pledge that they would not raise taxes. Have you thought about creating a pledge for politicians to sign that they would support ending corporate personhood and money as speech? Yes, we have it already. It's called the Pledge to Amend, and we will be picking it up big for 2020. So thank you for bringing that up. So people need to, when when people contact (laughs) candidates for president, you know, the next time you get an email from your favorite candidate for president asking for money, respond and say, hey, have you signed the pledge to overturn corporate personhood and, uh, you know, the move to amend pledge, right? And support the We the People Amendment. Exactly. There you go. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Great to talk to you. My pleasure, Caitlin. Caitlin, uh, Caitlin, suppose you bell nap is the national director of Move to Amend. MoveToAmend.org is the website that we've been talking about here. Check it out, and you can tweet her at Move to Amend. Caitlin, thanks so much, and keep up the great work. It is fabulous what you're doing. Let's check in with Luke Vargas and talk media news and find out what's going on in the world today. And Luke, the Trump administration is going after Cuba again. What's up with this? Yeah, we got some new travel restrictions put in place by the Treasury Department. If any one of your listeners wants to go to Cuba for a vacation that doesn't fit into a much now narrower set of exemption categories, you will no longer be able to go under this category of person-to-person cultural exchange, which is basically the exemption that hundreds of thousands of Americans have been using to go to the island on cruise ships and commercial flights the last few years. No American cruise lines will be able to dock in Cuba. I did not know how big this was, Tom. 142,000 Americans have visited Cuba since January 1st of this year alone, yep. uh, up to the end of April, just via cruise ships. So this is a big category of travel, which is going to close. There are going to be a ban on American private planes and private boats from entering the island. So let me tell you the 
stated justification here from the Treasury Department, and you tell me if it sounds like 1979 or 2019, quote, Cuba continues to play a destabilizing role in the Western Hemisphere, providing a communist foothold in the region and propping us U.S. adversaries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and fomenting instability. I mean, it's just funny, after 60 years of justifying these sorts of policies to get rid of the Castros, and now you've got new presidents, and this is now being defended by saying these same policies are needed because of Nicolas Maduro. So shifting targets, but the policies are right out of our old playbook here. Right, and you've got a new president in who's actually experimenting with capitalism. I mean, you know, Louise yeah. and I were there a year ago, March, yeah. and you've got these little bodegas, you've got these little restaurants, shops. Capitalism is popping, micro-capitalism, well-regulated capitalism is popping up all over Cuba, and the people are exactly. loving it. You would think that we would want to be saying, hey, cool, do a little more. You know, it's, let's you know, bring our values together. We'll learn from you. Cuba's principal export is doctors. We'll learn from you how to send 20,000 doctors to the rest of the world. And you can learn from us how to do microcapitalism. And maybe we could learn how to do microcapitalism, too. But it's just so sad. It's like, what are they afraid of? I don't think it's what they're afraid of. I think they're sucking up to, the Republicans have always been sucking up to basically the corrupt Batista buddies, you know, the families who made money when the island was run by the mafia. They want their property back. They want their money back. And so Mm -hmm. anyway, Joe Biden has released his uh, climate change agenda. He was criticized before for basically not making this a main feature. What is in his agenda? What do we need to know about this? Yeah, I would say, considering we had a report out a few weeks ago from Reuters where one of his advisors, an anonymous advisor, was quoted as saying Biden was going to strike a middle ground on climate change, which was basically the biggest thing you could do to sap progressive enthusiasm for this proposal before it dropped. I would say, given that, the plan isn't quite so galling. I've seen sort of tepid feedback from groups like Friends of the Earth. Sierra Club did endorse it. But, you know, even people like Bill McKibben, 350.org founder, says this is a good step, especially in some domains. Let me just recap it briefly. I mean, I would say the most important thing that this does is not in terms of emissions targets. He's pretty much in line with the rest of the Democratic candidates who've announced net zero by 2050 is his target. He wants electric vehicle charging stations all over the country, no fossil fuel drilling or other sorts of fossil work on public lands. That's one of the areas that's getting applause here, that this is... Those are all um, important steps. They're all important. I would say the the thing about, you know, banning fossil fuel development on public lands is is quite important among activists because it's something that doesn't need legislative approval. And I do think there's a generous dose of bipartisan, you know, fallacy, unfortunately, and a lot of what Biden is proposing here, he would need, you know, he wants, let's say, a bill in Congress to enact legally binding emissions cuts. You're not going to get that. So it's nice to offset that with some things he can do on his own. And I would say the biggest area I've been hearing positive feedback on, and I think is reflective of the fact that Biden has been an international diplomat, you know, on behalf of the Obama administration, is that he's really talking about how to coordinate international energy here and saying, look, we're especially on trade and specifically with China, we're going to impose these carbon adjustment fees when trading with countries that fail to meet their climate obligations. He says he wants to. Those are called tariffs, country. Luke. Yeah, they are tariffs, <laughs> but they are, you know, he's essentially calling them like climate tariffs. And right. he says, you know, we're going to try and get countries to come together to squeeze the Belt and Road Initiative so that it's not going to be funding carbon. It's basically, you know, outsourcing China's carbon footprint to other countries through billions of dollars in development. So I think there's excitement that there is a desire in Biden's plan to lean further into the kind of American leadership on climate that at times characterized the Obama administration. But again, seems a little bit middle of the road. I think in the last few months, he borrowed pretty heavily from Jay Inslee and in other spots from Michael Bennett, who have both been, you know, hitting this issue pretty hard. And the one area where your listeners should look into this, and I'm sure you'll have some thoughts once you read it, are about how to transition these coal countries, uh, you know, coal states, away from coal. I don't know all the details there, but that's going to be an argument Biden needs to make to win over the votes that Trump won last time. Yeah, well, there's not that many actual coal mines, you know, where miners go into the mines anymore. It's mostly big dump trucks and and giant earth-moving machines, which is very, very few employees. But we'll see. Luke Vargas, you can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Mike in Palatine, Illinois. Hey, Mike, what's up? 
Hey, Tom, I just wanted to bounce this off you. I'm getting very concerned with a lot of the Democratic base getting disillusioned by the Democratic Party, taking little or no action against who we elected in 2018 to clean house, and they still haven't. Right. And specifically, like the FDNY, it's starting to remind You're talking Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutor there. Yeah, it's reminding me more and more of the Flint water crisis, where you don't even hear about it on the news anymore. Yeah. And Letitia James, when she first came out, she came out with guns blazing, you know, saying inaugural committee investigations that, she, you know, they find Those are ongoing out. right now, Mike. That's what I was wondering. Do you know, um, do they have sealed indictments? Is that I don't know if they have indictments, but it? I know that they've got a grand jury going. They are calling witnesses. They have acquired, she has, Letitia James, to the best of my knowledge, has acquired data from Deutsche Bank and from the Capital One, I think it was. She's going forward full tilt boogie. She shut down the Trump Foundation already. So, yeah, I, you now, know. Can they subpoena any of the Trump kids by chance? They can, and we'll see where that goes. They also, I believe, you know, I only saw this in one place, so I can't uh, swear that this is absolutely true. But one news report that I saw said that Paul Manafort was just moved to be available to the New York Attorney General, to Letitia James, for prosecution in New York for crimes that he's committed there. So, you know, we'll see where it goes. But I think I'm actually quite optimistic. Mike, I, gotta run. I want to get another caller in here before the end of the hour. Brian in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, I was just calling because I heard the Cuba words. I used to lead the people to people tours there. I've been over 23 times in four years. The new Trump policy is so ill-informed and destructive to Americans and Cubans. uh, And it's just completely ignorant and they know nothing about the situation. Oh, and he's doing this to Venezuela. He's doing it to Iran. And now he's trying to do it to Cuba. Destroy a nation economically. Yeah, and we're making the same mistake we made decades ago. We could be friends with them, and we should be friends with yeah. them at this point. I totally agree. Brian, I want to get one more caller in here. Thanks for the call. Paul in Elmhurst, Illinois. Paul, you got 30 seconds. What do you, you wanted to talk about impeachment? Just tell me I'm crazy. Could it possibly be that the likes of Nancy Pelosi and the other people, it doesn't matter which, but both sides of the party, are behind closed doors saying, look, we can't go with impeachment because it would end up having a civil war in the country. Do I don't think, think so. Like that behind the behind no. doors is happening? I don't think they're afraid at all. I really don't think they're afraid at all. I think that they're moving forward. Fred in Bremerton, Washington. Fred, you got 10 seconds. What's on your mind? I'm a liberal. I love everybody that lives in this country. Every American imports, exports. I don't care who you are. You believe in this country and what it believes in. I'm fine with that. I'm also a gun owner. The only reason I own guns is because I take training. I understand what they're all about. But I'm now owning guns because I don't know what the right's going to do. Okay, Fred, thanks for the call. Whoa, that's a whole nother conversation. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport, right? We can't just sit around and complain about stuff. We've got to do something. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 